Hello, I'm Jason Bring, a partner at the law firm of Arnold Golden Gregory and co-chair of our post-acute care team. Welcome back to our podcast series, AGG Talks, Home Health and Hospice. Our podcast series features AGG attorneys and guests discussing business opportunities and legal issues for our friends in the home health and hospice industries. While we don't actually provide the care, we nevertheless consider ourselves part of the home health and hospice industry. We enjoy sharing what we've learned after working with clients throughout the country, as well as giving our thoughts on new opportunities and challenges facing the industry, whether regulatory, reimbursement, compliance, or otherwise. I'm here today with one of my healthcare partners, one that I work closely with, Lanchi Bambalier, who, in addition to handling tons of reimbursement audits and appeals, is also a physical therapist by background. She also holds other degrees, such as a Master's of Public Health Administration, and uh, that's a powerful package of healthcare experience that she brings to our clients. Today, our episode will focus on home health and reimbursement audits and appeals, where Lanchi and I will discuss the audit environment and how folks can better prepare and navigate the process. So with that, let's get started. Uh, Lanchi, I mentioned some of your background. Maybe you can give us a little bit of detail and how that comes to bear on helping clients with their reimbursement issues. Thanks, Jason. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk today. I think uh, the one thing that I always uh, believe my physical therapy background helps with is the fact that I have sat in the shoes of all of my clients. I practiced clinically and was actually involved in an audit and really was surprised by um, auditors making decisions that were contrary to my clinical judgment. And just that was the reason why I sought out the law degree, because I was in that position. And we're here today about reimbursement and home health and hospice audit appeals. How long have you been doing these types of reimbursement appeals? And, you know, what types of things have you seen over the years leading up to your practice today? Well, you're asking me to (laughs) give you my age, but it's been uh, over a decade, right? So definitely uh, I started working as a physical therapist. That was six years. And then with schooling, I've been doing this reimbursement work for about 14 years now. So please don't add that up. But uh, definitely, I think it's one of those things where I learn all the time because the auditors are changing, their standards are changing, the regulations change. So every day is a new day, I think, in this space. Well, Lanchi, the tagline of our firm is not if, but how. And when it comes to audits, I often say it's not if, but when. With that in mind, are there things our hospice and home health clients can do to help avoid audits in the first place? Well, you know, I think it's uh, being aware of your census and keeping track of it. We have definitely seen in the hospice space, I think we always say that, you know, predicting terminal prognosis is not a science, um, but you definitely have that six-month time frame in your mind and looking at patients with long lengths of stay or perhaps patients that are in the general inpatient setting for more than five days, taking a closer look at those patients, making sure that you document what you need to so that if it is looked at, that you can support it in front of an auditor or in front of an administrative law judge. That sounds, uh, those examples you gave, probably more hospice-specific. Are there things that home health providers likewise can do to kind of help avoid an audit in the first place? 
definitely in the home health uh, setting, having your technical items in line, such as your face-to-face documentation, making sure that all of that is in the record. I think that the auditors are always looking at homebound status and skilled need in those settings. And so when you think of skilled need, making sure that your nurses and your therapists are documenting not only what they're providing, but why they're providing it and why it needs to continue to be provided, I think is important. So even you know, with that, it sounds like these audits are probably inevitable from what we've seen. So do some of those things carry over to you know, steps to avoid an audit in the first place? Do those carry over to then helping survive an audit when it comes to bear? Uh, Definitely, I think the admission process is key, making sure that you have all the documentation that you need, all the medical records that you need from even from other providers, particularly if a patient's coming from uh, a referral at a hospital or another setting. I think that you know, Medicare has indicated that they're done with the the pay and chase. And so making sure you have those items from the outset to the extent that you have prepayment review will also help turn around your review times and your ability to get paid on a timely basis, right? So I think those are all good practices that providers can do proactively. I guess almost all of our clients' health records these days are EMRs, electronic medical records, And those can be beneficial, but also present some challenges. What things can folks do, you know, working with their EMR to be able to present it better to the auditors? I think EMRs are very helpful in some sense, but there's a lot of auto-populate and there's a lot of checkboxes. Making sure that staff understand what they're saying or what they're attesting to when they check the box is helpful. For instance, one thing that I've seen is some staff might check that they received a verbal order, but that might be something that they're doing just to get through that page so that they can get to the page that they're documenting the, the visit. And then what you have is you have a, an EMR that shows an incorrect verbal order date, and that causes problems in the long run, right? Because the EMR is not set up like a typical medical record. Once that page is checked, very few clinicians go back and uh, revisit the page. You mentioned the auto-populate type features. You and I have talked in the past and seen a lot of clients struggle with that issue when, especially, for example, for a hospice client, every entry from week to week looks like exactly the same picture for the patient. Is that something folks really need to be aware of and making sure that they have diversity of charting, essentially? Yes, I think one of those things, like you've mentioned, you know, the auditors are very wary to pick up on patterns now. So if you have a patient that every recertification or every note looks like a copy and paste, that's going to be flagged right away, particularly for providers that use a lot of measurable scales, numbers, you know, when the numbers don't change, um, it's really easy to pick up on, on a second review by someone else. So making sure that you customize and reflect what changes occur, I think, is uh, is key to surviving an audit. Now, whether EMR or otherwise, do you also sometimes see conflicts in the medical record? For example, a physician is documenting one thing, but a nurse is documenting something else. Do auditors really pick up on those types of issues as well? 
uh, that's a great point. Auditors pick up on inconsistencies as well as judges. I think with inconsistencies in documenting certain things, maybe it's the patient's ambulatory ability, maybe it's the patient's, you know, weight or something like that. It brings into question the veracity or the validity of all of the documentation. So when you see a lot of inconsistencies in the record, it definitely raises questions as to whether or not the clinicians are actually documenting accurate information. And so it's, it's always an uphill battle when you have a lot of inconsistencies. I know when you and I present on these issues, you know, at conferences and the like, we often draw parallels between the reimbursement preparation and survey preparation. In my view, it seems like the reimbursement preparation is super important uh, because that's where the money is. And, and so doing all these things on a proactive basis before you ever have an audit, uh, working with a consultant and your attorneys seems like a valuable investment for our clients to make so that they can better position themselves during an audit. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think the survey is what's on everyone's mind because they think of that as being tied to enrollment. And I know folks that they have survey teams, right, uh, on their watch, and but very few have actual audit teams, particularly for smaller providers or providers that you know don't have the staffing. I, I think it's worthwhile to see Who's your team uh, when you get an audit, whether it involves internal folks or whether or not you bring external folks like what you mentioned, consultants or a law firm? I think it's important to get that team together so that you can respond. Absolutely. Well, we've talked about trying to avoid uh, you know, denials and, and avoid audits in the first place, but inevitably our clients and providers are going to have those audits and they, they oftentimes lead to denials. What happens at that point? Can you walk folks through kind of the appeal process, what they can expect on that? Yeah, so the appeal process, and we'll just talk about the Medicare appeals process, is uh, it's set out in regulation, so it's very standard. There are four levels of appeal within the administration. The first two are with contractors, your Medicare administrative contractor and then the qualified independent contractor. The third, which I think is the most important uh, phase to get to, is one where you're actually before an administrative law judge. That is where you actually get to talk to the adjudicator, answer questions. It's really more interactive. The first phases are basically on the record reviews, you, you put forth arguments and writing and appeals, but no opportunity to, for the most part, to discuss anything with the person that's reviewing the records. So we, we try to get through the administrative law judge hearing, um, you know, on a timely basis in order, because I think that's where you have your best shot. And then after that, there's one more level of review before you get to an opportunity to go to federal district court, which I, I think is probably, it's the last phase of appeal, but um, not as appealing to many providers just because of the time and the costs involved. Right. It sounds like with all those various levels and everything, I assume there are, well, I, I know there are different deadlines for each level and everything we've discussed before. It's somewhat the trap for the unwary, like almost that they've created this labyrinth for providers to have to navigate. Is that difficult for providers to do on their own without having assistance from a law firm or consultants? I definitely think having someone that is responsible for calendaring, tracking, and then unfortunately sometimes double checking 
on uh, the status of the appeals is critical. Uh, we've definitely seen instances where folks miss deadlines by one day or two days. Uh, the regulations are pretty strict unless you can provide a, an adequate reason for that. And an adequate reason is not that it sat on someone's desk <laughs> for too long. Um, you know, you may not have, you may lose your opportunity to appeal based on a technicality only. So we generally have a lot of systems and double checks in place to avoid that. Um, if we don't see a decision, for instance, coming to us within a certain amount of time, sometimes we'll reach out to the contractor to see if something's lost in the mail. Because it is shocking they still use snail mail. And there have been times where something sits on their desk for a while and you have to be able to track that and show that they mailed it out late or that they didn't provide it on time or that you never received it. Yeah, and I know we had an example even this week, I think. We really have to hold the contractor's feet to the fire as well because sometimes we receive letters that are dated maybe two months prior, but then they're not postmarked until currently. So either they sat on somebody's desk at the, the contractors or they're you know backdating the letters. But that's something that folks really need to have somebody there keeping aware of, from what I've seen at least. Oh, absolutely. And I definitely think that providers need to know that when those situations do happen, you can fight that appeal, right? Like that example that you gave, that is one where I think we have a, a very good argument uh, before a judge that uh, we are not delayed in um, submitting an appeal. But it's, it's important to know what your rights are and to know the deadlines and to know what arguments you can make. I guess for folks out there who haven't been through the process, I mean, is it worth it to go through the appeals process? Do we see reversals? Um, I definitely think that it's worthwhile to go through the appeals process simply because it's there for a reason and there are different um, reviewers that you get. I mean, it is unfortunate, but a lot of times I don't think that providers get a fair shot with the on-the-record appeals that they get at the first and the second levels, not for any fault other than maybe the reviewer didn't have adequate experience in the particular area that they're reviewing. Uh, I know that we were looking at one hospice case and the contractor used a respiratory therapist to do their review, which is not a core service in hospice. And so uh, when you have reviewers that don't understand your business or your practice area, Sometimes you get bad denials, and I think those are worth fighting. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned hospice. Let's focus on hospice for a second. What trends are you seeing lately with hospice audits and the types of denials or things that auditors are looking at? Well, definitely hospice has been an area of focus for the government, and we're seeing not only targeted probe and educate, but also contractor UPIC, you know, the um, Unified Program Integrity Contractor audits in that space. The one thing that I think is notable that we've picked up on recently is, you know, it's been several years now since they passed the new uh, requirements for the election of benefits or the notice of election forms, and they're picking up on the technical requirements for that. And it makes it a really easy denial because I think a lot of providers use templates. So if they find an issue or an omission in your form, that ends up creating a cascade effect in terms of the denials for all of your claims. And not only for the dates of service that they're looking at, but for future dates of service as well, based on that same election of benefit form. 
Yeah, you and I have talked about the technical issues sometimes are more challenging to appeal because they can be more black and white versus the gray area of whether someone was eligible. But even with that black and white type of issue, the technical denials, we can do a lot of things to help providers even then, right, with missing signatures and affidavits. Absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of times it's looking also and trying to explain the admission process. Maybe it's not on one particular form, but it was given to the beneficiary or their family in another form. So those are all things that we would explore when talking to a provider about what exactly their process involves and what can we do to supplement uh, in an appeal. Um, we mentioned hospice on the home health front. What, what types of things are we seeing on the home health side? On the home health side, I think they're still looking uh, very closely at the, the requirements related to homebound status and skilled need. The technical denials are more about uh, getting the face-to-face documentation and making sure that it's signed by the appropriate physician that's certifying the patient. And also, in terms of technical denials that I've seen a lot in the face-to-face, a lot of times it's a physician uh, signature legibility issue that sometimes you can uh, correct or fix with a signature log or an attestation from a physician, just simply because home health providers, unlike hospices, are dealing with multiple physicians in the community and getting their plans of care certified. I know we've talked at conferences and presented on this idea during the appeals of trying to spoon feed the auditors and, and really uh, presenting things in a, in a concise way for the administrative law judges. What resources does AGG and your team have to assist clients with that process? Well, I think it's really helpful um, to just know how records are reviewed and what reviewers are looking for and making sure that it's organized. Like you said, I think some of the best things that you can do is make it easy for a reviewer to confirm that you met all the requirements. So we have uh, two RNs who are very familiar with both home health and hospice on our team. We have great paralegals who are also great at calendaring, helping to organize the files, making sure everything's tabbed and, you know, picking up on different nuances in terms of the timing for when things need to be submitted and making sure that we account for mailing deadlines as well as some of the deadlines. You can uh, do electronic filing now. So those are all different. So our, our team kind of helps get providers, get their records together organize them, and get them submitted on time so that you don't have issues. Great. Uh, Any final tips for providers out there who are facing uh, this ever-increasing audit environment? Um, I think the main thing is, uh, you know, with the government and dealing with the government, the best thing that you can do is to stay organized. Make sure that someone's responsible. I think this is not an area where you want, you know, ambiguity regarding who's supposed to be gathering the records or who's supposed to be responding or who's going to be available to return the phone call when you get a a call from a government auditor. And definitely, I think, you know, I'm always a proponent of if you need help staying organized, ask for help because this is a very tricky technical area where, you know, a misstep is really hard to correct on the back end. So avoiding missing deadlines and making sure your records are organized will go a long way. Awesome. Well, Lanche, I really want to thank you for sharing your insights today. And to our listeners, we hope you found this discussion informative. If you have any questions about the reimbursement or audit environment, or if you'd like to 
submit topics for future podcasts, please reach out to Lanchi or me directly, and we're happy to you know discuss these things with you. We're easy to find at agg.com. Future podcast episodes will be distributed through our AGG website and social media pages. And thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Thank you.